para arriba, para abajo, para el centro y para adentro. That was my good friend Francisco reciting a sacred proverb that we undertook in grad school. It basically translates to bring your glasses up, bring them down, bring them together, and drink. Francisco and some of my other classmates would meet up at a Harlem tavern or whatever dive bar we can afford in New York City. Uh, and we'd take a couple of shots to drown away the pain of our merciless economics exams and our 17,000 group projects. So some of you probably have a little bit more class than me and prefer your tequila in a margarita. But whichever way you like your tequila, you probably should be thinking about where your tequila comes from and how it gets to the United States. So check this. The United States is the largest importer of Mexican tequila, followed by countries in the European Union. So and tequila, like our strawberries in our smoothies or the fabric on our new pair of Timberland boots, are a part of a complicated web of trade relationships and policies with countries from around the world. So you may have heard that the president of the United States uh, threatened to remove America from NAFTA. In this episode, we're going to be breaking down NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, and we're going to revisit some basic trade concepts that you've heard about and you probably haven't had time to Google. Don't freak out. I'm not going to make you do profit maximization formulas. We're just going to talk high level here with Jana Nelson, uh, who is a foreign policy interrupted fellow. So don't disappear on me. Grab your margarita and let's get started. You have tuned in to WERALP Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming on demand at WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumia Kinesotu, and this is What in the World? What in the World makes current issues of American foreign policy understandable and relevant uh, to your everyday life. This is a place where we examine uh, what you hear in the news and apply it and apply it to examples that you can relate to, you know, in your community, in your home and at your place of work. So guests on the show are typically women and people of color who are experts in foreign policy and offer a, a unique perspective on how to understand America's relationship with the rest of the world. We strip away the wonkiness and the acronyms and the politics and we just get down to business and we try to cover the basics. So today we're talking about trade policy. Conveniently, at the time of this recording, negotiations on the North America Free Trade Agreement, otherwise known as NAFTA, are about to take place here in Washington, D.C. Joining me is Jana Nelson, and Jana is going to help us understand what in the world is NAFTA and what it means for us here in America. Jana is a foreign policy interrupted fellow She's an expert in Latin America, particularly Mexico and Brazil. Jana was an American diplomat. She worked at the State Department, so she was out there in those streets having all those great parties. <laughs> uh, she has done um, work with government relations consulting, and she speaks lots of languages. So how many languages do you speak, Jana? Four currently. Four currently. So there are plans to add to the list. <laughs> and, and what are they? 
Um, well, I speak Portuguese and English natively because I'm a dual Brazilian-American, and um, I speak Spanish um, very fluently. Um, I currently live in Mexico, so I need to do it for work. I need to use it for work. And French is probably the one I speak the least. Uh, at some point, I was fluent, but no longer is the case. And you have no worries because I'm not going to test you on any one of those languages except for English. <laughs> so you're, I believe, everything you say. And how many countries have you lived in? I've Probably lived in around five. I was born and raised in Brazil. I spent many years in the United States. I'm currently in Mexico, and I've lived in Bolivia, Argentina, and um, Colombia, so that makes six. Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You've moved a lot around, and those are all really cool countries. Uh, So, Jana, tell us a little bit about yourself. What sparked your interest in foreign policy? So so I was born and raised in the Brazilian Amazon. My parents are American scientists who ended up in the Amazon in 1980. Um, so I grew up in a very international, multicultural world, and um, I've always been interested in, in foreign policy and international affairs as a result of that. Specifically on the issue of trade, I think my interest comes from having grown up in a closed economy. Um, Brazil in the 1980s and and to a certain extent for the most part of the 1990s had closed borders. A lot of the international products or imported products could not get into the United States, to Brazil. And we also had an economic crisis. So it was a double whammy, right? You couldn't get imported products. My mom couldn't buy what she needed to make pancakes or waffles (laughs) or whatever, really. Um, And then you had an economic crisis in which because of these rules and regulations, um, the, the, the producers, folks from the farm, folks that, that created products would not would just not put them to market because the price wasn't right, because the government was controlling prices. Mm. So when I was a child, my mom had to barter for eggs and milk and like the basics you think that you'd have to have for a kid. And she didn't have that. So growing up in that world in which my sandwich at school was more expensive every day because of inflation. And if I wanted something that my cousins in the U.S. had, I couldn't have it because we just couldn't buy it. It didn't exist. It wasn't you couldn't import anything. And then also the challenge was finding certain products that were domestic products, but the price was controlled so people wouldn't sell it. Mm. I can I can see you as like a little girl in the market with your mom she's like probably yelling and screaming at someone over you know eggs you know the price of eggs and it's just (laughs) I could just see you looking at her and 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 picking up those great negotiation skills I would not want to mess with you at the negotiation table because (laughs) if you've been around that type of negotiating I can only imagine you know what what type of um, deals you could you could see maybe we should have you at the table this week at the NAFTA yeah. agreement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she was very much a tough cookie in negotiations in America. So I don't know if people appreciated her, but um, she got what she needed to do. So she got what she wanted. She sounds like my mom. My mom always tells me <laughs> to beat down the price, beat it down, beat it down. Uh, and I think it's cool that your parents were, you said they were scientists? Yes, yes, they are. And they were like going, were they like a part of a university or did they work for the government or how did they end up in, in the Amazon? They do, they do research. My father's a botanist and he, um, he, I mean, he, he's done several different things uh, over the past years. He's worked on climate, uh, climate change analysis to see if the Amazon is or is not the one who actually absorbs most of the carbon from, from the atmosphere. 
The answer is no, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, he's looked into how to reforest the Amazon, you know, how like, there's so much deforestation. How can you plant the trees all over again? Um, there are ways to do it, but not at a grand scale. Um, he's looked at uh, the latest, actually, he looked at is the uh, trees in the Amazon actually fall, just like in the temperate forest in the mm-hmm. United States. They fall twice a year, but they all fall at different times. So you would never guess that. If you took a picture from above, it's always green mm. all year long. But the trees do actually shed leaves. So he um, he found that out and joined his research with a few other folks. And in March last year, um, that research was on the cover of Science Magazine. Very cool. All right. Well, I have to get my hands on that uh, on that article. Maybe you can send it to me. We'll make sure we shoot it out and uh, shout out your dad for all his his great work in trying to prove that climate change actually exists. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yes, um, I yes. Shout out to your dad uh, for being very cool um, and shout out to your mom for holding down the, the negotiating and, and not spending too much money on on eggs and giving you guys great pancakes. So (laughs) you are also a foreign policy interrupted fellow. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what foreign policy interrupted is? Foreign policy interrupted is an NGO in the United States that tries to get the voice of women out there in politics, in the public media as thought leaders and not pet pieces. Uh, They have a fellowship program in which they will train Women who are on the cusp of being thought leaders or have just become begun being thought leaders, they'll train them on um, public speaking. They'll train them. They'll do media training. They'll uh, teach them how to pitch to um, you know papers, um, pitch their op eds. They'll do a lot of conversation on confidence and that kind of stuff. So it, it's a, a really good program. It's pretty intense. It's six weeks, um, and the the two um, Elmira. And Lauren Boone, who run, run the program, are fantastic. They're wonderful, wonderful supporters of, of the voice of women in politics. Yeah, I agree. I follow the, um, I get the newsletter. And uh, for our listeners, I encourage you to uh, sign up to their newsletter. It's hilarious. They are so funny. Um, they have got memes in there and everything just explaining what's going on in foreign policy. Um, and it's just very uh, informative. So, um, thanks for that uh, explanation of, of foreign policy interrupted. So let's jump right into the meat of why you are on the show today. So right now, the United States is in the middle of negotiating uh, trade deals with Canada and Mexico under the North America Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. Uh, the three nations have negotiated before, but a few months ago, um, really, actually, it started last year during the president's um, campaign, uh, he sort of threatened to withdraw the United States from NAFTA, and he calls it, you know, a big mistake, and it's harmful for Americans. And so now we're at the at the table this week, ne- renegotiating the terms of, of NAFTA. Before we go into the details of what it is, I thought we'd talk about basic international trade concepts that we learned in high school that maybe some of us uh, failed that class or skipped the class or fell asleep. Um, but I'm getting flashbacks now to my economics classes and I'm shaking, but I'll be all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jana is going to, um, you know, just break apart some basic concepts. Um, and what I want to do is uh, read an excerpt from 
the recent executive order that calls on the federal government to address trade violations and abuses. There are a lot of terms in this section of the executive order, and this is where we're sort of going to use, this is what we're going to use to sort of break down the concept of trade policy. So here's what the executive order says. It says, every trade agreement and investment agreement entered into the, by the United States and all trade relations um, should enhance our economic growth, contribute favorably to our balance of trade, and strengthen the American manufacturing base. Um, it goes on to say that the abuses and violations create trade deficits, a lack of reciprocal treatment of American goods and investment, the offshoring of factories and jobs, the loss of American intellectual property, and reduced technological innovation, downward pressure of wage and income growth, and an impaired tax base. Uh, it also um, talks about the United States wanting to renegotiate or terminate any existing trade agreement that basically puts America's businesses, people, and economy in a um, in a in a harmful position. So, Jana, um, let's start with some basic terms. Um, what I hear a lot, or what we what we hear a lot, and it's in this, it's in the title of this agreement, um, is the word free trade. Not to be confused with fair trade. What is free trade? Free trade is the elimination of tariffs between countries. So it, it, it is the goal of achieving um, the same price or almost the same price of a product in two different countries that you don't pay to import or to export. And the logic behind that is once you lower the price of the product, you'll increase sales, you'll increase production, and you'll increase jobs. In addition to increasing the diversity of products available because they're just easier to move around. Um, and you have a number of examples of this happening. Um, the European Union is a free trade agreement, um, a free movement of people as well. But but you see in the European Union, you have that very clearly. NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, is another example of that. Um, to a certain extent, Mercosur in the south uh, of in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Paraguay, Uruguay, all of those are uh, within a somewhat of a free trade agreement. It's important to note that some of them are freer than others. Some mm -hmm. of them, um, free trade agreements are rarely, rarely do you get every single product without any tariff. I mean, most countries will say, hey, this product I want to protect or that product I want to protect. But it's, it's the goal of achieving as many products as you can, services, investments, without an additional cost because it crossed borders. And so the tariff is essentially a tax. It's essentially a tax that you pay when you cross the border. Okay. So a good, any good, uh, let's say I'm country A and I've got, um, I don't know, phones. <laughs> and you're country B <laughs> and you've got brooms. Um, I need brooms, you need phones. So a tariff would basically say, uh, or in a, a sort of a free trade environment, I, we would say we're not going to tax each other for exchanging our goods. I won't put a tax on your brooms. You won't put a tax on my phones. 
Exactly. And so the brooms will compete um, in, in same same as the domestic brooms, if you will, and they'll compete just on who's the better broom. Okay. <laughs> fair, fair. I don't know anything about the broom industry, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the so we've got the idea down of free trade and a tariff. You've covered those. So the executive order mentions a trade deficit. What is a trade deficit? Well, a trade deficit is when you sell more than you buy, right? So, so most people think that you, because you sell, oh, sorry, you you buy more than you sell. It's the other way around. You end up buying more than you mm-hmm. sell. Um, most people will will assume that because you're buying more than you're selling, you're actually losing money overall. That is only true when you have a very simplistic market. Nowadays, things are, are far more complex, and the United States is even more complex than, than most countries because the dollar is present all over the world, right? If, if we were to bring all those dollars back into the United States, inflation would rise amazingly. And no other country can do what the U.S. does in terms of the amount of imports, the amount of exports, the amount of money that it has circulating around the world. Because but back to the... But- but that's uh-huh. because that. But that's because you're saying the dollar. The, the dollar just doesn't rest here within the borders of the United States. The dollar exists everywhere around the world. Everywhere. So our collection, our value, the value of our of our dollar of the U.S. dollar, is so significant that a trade deficit really wouldn't. Uh, well, there, there's several pieces of the pie that the dollar being everywhere does make it more um, complex. And it's one of these things that is unique about the United States and helps offset a lot of these deficits. Right. Um, but in different ways as well. So 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 trade deficits, um, if you have a free trade situation, you actually grew the piece, the, the pie. Right. So mm-hmm. You have more to, to split um, between the U.S. and Mexico, for example, once they signed NAFTA, the trade between the two countries grew threefold. So the fact that there is a deficit actually ultimately doesn't matter so much because the trade grew so much that right. everybody now has more jobs, uh, more productivity, yes, better yes. quality of products. Got it. However, if you're still worried about the numbers game, um, the reality is this doesn't include investment, financial capital investment. Mm. So all these people who are investing from the outside in um, the NASDAQ or in, in, in the New York Stock Exchange, all of that um, doesn't count in terms of flow of goods, but all of that is money coming into the United States that also offsets um, any of our trade deficits. And our trade deficits. So it's okay. just far, yeah, it's just far more complex than the exchange of goods. Mm. Um, and because the two countries are so... Uh, the two countries are not isolated, right? So right. maybe the United States has a deficit with Mexico, but it has a surplus with, I don't know, Germany, Norway, China, I don't, you know, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. And those things all offset each other around the world. Ultimately, it's a win-win situation because the same happens with Mexico. They'll have a deficit with Brazil and a surplus with the United States. So it all evens out in the end. Yeah, so there are just so many other factors to consider um, uh, besides just the exchange of goods uh, that you mentioned, like we get to maybe go to Cancun and that, you know, the fact that Mexico is stable, for example, and we have people who can go to Cancun for vacation, that in and of itself um, is a value that Americans bring that we can travel and for, for Mexico, that's, you know, tourist dollars as well. Right. So we gain something. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, 
positive externalities or the benefits that one gets from trade go much, much more beyond about the money that you sell uh, or the products that you sell, the money you gain, right? Um, because because trade has grown three times between the two countries, for example, you have more jobs, therefore you have people in Mexico with a better economic situation, therefore you have less migrants, migrants. in the United States mm. because they're not desperate. Right. So you have a series of positive things that come from this increased trade between two countries. And you mentioned a word that just like made me shake. And you said the word positive externality externalities. And thank you for <laughs> for the immediate definition of basically it's a benefit. It's the it's the good that exactly. comes of a positive externality is the good that comes from some sort of e- economic activity. Um, exactly. OK. And so what a, another phrase it's not mentioned specifically in the section that um I read, but it's it's certainly in other sections of the executive order. There's this idea of dumping and countervailing. Can you explain what dumping is and what countervailing is? Of course. Dumping is when a foreign government decides to sell a product at less than its value. So if if the United States were to sell those phones to Mexico at cheaper than cost, that would be dumping. Or if the broom were to be sold to the United States at cheaper than cost, because you're not, you're essentially trying to destroy the market of the other country. Mm. Because the, the so so in this case, Mexican phones will not be able to compete with these extremely cheap U.S. phones, right? Because it's just not the cost. It doesn't. The numbers don't add up, right? Um, and then you destroy the, the 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 market of the other country. You become the only firm able to sell mm. phones. Um, and then you become a monopoly. Um, the countervailing is essentially a subsidy. So you can do something similar by making these products cheaper by subsidizing. So the government subsidizes the phone, and therefore the, the phone can be sold at a cheaper price in Mexico than it would normally be sold. Um, so both of those are problems in, in trade, and both of those have um, very you know, – if any of that happens, you're you're going against the terms of the free trade, and the countries can be taken to trade court, if you will, um, <laughs> and 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 they will they will suffer the consequences. There's a series of consequences that come from this. Um, there's different types of trade courts, and but for example, the most obvious one is the WTO, and the WTO will slap a fine on the country that does this, and the fine will be um, equivalent to the crime, if you will. Okay, so the WTO is stands for the World Trade Organization. So since you brought that up, what do they they so now you've sort of mentioned that they are where the trade court sits. <laughs> um, but what else do they do for countries that are interested in trading with one another? The the World Trade Organization is um the is like the, the the preacher, you know, it's the one that goes out and tells the word of God to the world. Okay. It's the one who tells everybody how amazing trade is to the world and tries to preach this to every single country. So it it tries to, to it has, um, I, I don't know exactly how many countries it has right now, but it's really most of, of the world is a number with a few exceptions. China, for example, has joined about, about 10 years ago. It's a big, big deal. Mm-hmm. But to join, you have to believe in the tenets of free trade. You have to espouse the tenets of free trade. Um, so you can only be a member if you have um, a basic um, belief in, in the benefits of free trade. And once you become a member, your goal is to diminish tariffs as much as possible with as many countries as possible. So it's the 
it's the institution that nudges the world towards freer and freer trade. Um, and it does it globally. It doesn't do it in countries. So NAFTA is a negotiation between countries, between three countries. But WTO is, is the world, um, all of the world, working towards that goal of free trade. Now, it also has teeth, right? Because if you have an institution like that that doesn't have teeth, it's not very effective. And though that's the trade court we were just discussing, that if a country does something that goes against free trade, WTO will go against that country. And so there, so let's back up one second. So there are 164 states, which I, I figured that I learned the other day. There are 164 countries, I should say, <laughs> in World Trade. But, but you mentioned something about teeth. And I want to I wanna maybe use an example to help people understand what the World Trade Organization is, because I think this is really uh, important to understanding um, just how trade works. So I liken the World Trade Organization to, for Americans, like the NBA. The NBA has rules and policies and standards uh, for teams to follow. Uh, if there's a team that wants to participate uh, in the NBA, they approach the NBA and the NBA has its own set of, uh, you know, standards and, and processes for getting a team into the NBA. They settle disputes between teams. So if, you know, the Celtics and uh, I don't know, the Bulls are, are have an issue with each other um, or if there's something going on with a with a trade of a player, the NBA is sort of there to mediate um, any disagreements. Is that a good way to think about the World Trade Organization? It's kind of like they're coaches, they're referees, they've got rules, they've got um, standards. They, I, I like the example you use. They're also kind of preachers and push, you know, the idea of free trade. Is that a good way to think about? the World Trade Organization? Yeah, no, that's perfect. That's exactly what it is. Okay. Uh, so for the United States, what are the federal agencies that lead our involvement, America's involvement um, in trade? What are, we, we hear a lot of them, but I don't know if people actually know what they do. So can you, what are the actual institutions or government agencies in the United States responsible for trade? Of course. Well, the main lead is the U.S. Um, the United States Trade Representative, um, and, and currently it's Robert Lighthizer. Uh, and generally, it's somebody with a lot of trade negotiation background, trade law background, because it's a very, very technical position. And, and it's it's called U.S. Trade Representative, but he has a whole staff and an institution below him. It's um, not one of the, it's it's a relatively small uh, a small agency, but it, it they do have. Uh, significant amount of staff depending on the region and depending on the topic. Um, they are in the executive office of the president, so they report to the White House, to the president. Okay. Now, there are many others that are in the negotiations, though they might not lead it. The Department of Commerce is one. The Department of State is another. Agriculture is there because they have to negotiate the agriculture portion. Energy is there for anything related to energy. Um, if there's anything related to labor laws, because a lot of these trade agreements have um, standards, they require standards in terms of labor, then you know, Department of Labor would be involved. Same thing applies for environment. If there's anything that is, uh, if, if they're negotiating standards for environmental um, with environmental concerns, just 
just to make the EPA would be involved, right? right? To make sure that there's a level playing field for production in both countries so that not one country has too low uh, labor standards or, or no, no labor standards and no environmental standards. And right. therefore, that way they can produce something cheaper than the country that does actually abide by standards. So we try to increase everybody's standards and level them at the highest um, playing field possible so that everybody can compete um, equally. Yeah, and that's a that's you raised the point about labor, and I think that's a great way to shift our focus to the to to NAFTA um, because NAFTA NAFTA has some mixed um, uh, reviews in the streets of trade and foreign policy. Um, so a, about a month ago, no, two months ago, June and July, DC, uh, the District of Columbia was full, heavy with um, business leaders, um, government representatives from Mexico and Canada, academics, um, you know, nonprofit organizations. They all descended upon D.C. a couple of months ago for a series of hearings before Congress. And in those hearings, many of those representatives talked about the value of NAFTA and the harm of NAFTA, of NAFTA, what it, what it what it doesn't do for Americans, and this labor this issue of labor came up. But I want to read um, an interesting quote um, from uh, Randy Price, who is the CEO of VF Corporation. Now, VF Corporation um, owns Wrangler, Timberland Boots, North Face, Lee, uh, and here's a, a, a interesting quote that he or an interesting part of his his hearing. Um, testimony when he spoke before Congress. He says, a pair of Wrangler brand jeans assembled in one of VF's Mexican factories, for example, uses cotton from Texas, fabric and zippers from Georgia, and threads from North Carolina. This process supports thousands of jobs across the United States. Without NAFTA, there would be significantly less demand for these U.S. exports. And our VF supply chain in the United States, Mexico, and Canada would be much smaller. So they boast they've got 29,000 people employed in the United States and 38,000 between um, Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So, again, this week we start the negotiations around NAFTA. Jana, what is, on a high level, what is NAFTA and why does it exist? So NAFTA is elimination of, of tariffs on, on trade between three countries, um, three neighbors. It's the United States, Canada, and it, it's Mexico. It starts in, in with a completely different, um, or, or rather coming from a different um, perspective. Reagan in 84 is very frustrated with the amount of drugs coming from Mexico and is trying to find a way to, um, to, to once and for all resolve this issue, recognizing that um, stopping the drugs on the border is not a very effective way of doing it because if they can't cross the border, they'll go through oceans or they'll find other ways to get into the United States. So he decides that the best way to um, eliminate the, the flow of drugs from Mexico or diminish significantly the flow of drugs from Mexico to the United States is by developing Mexico, by making Mexico a stronger economy. And he is a liberal economist. He's a free trade believer. So he, um, he has he, his logic is free trade will help Mexico in a number of ways. Um, so that's how that's when he starts conversations in 1984 
to achieve that. They they pick up speed in the 1990s when Mexico has themselves a liberal economist as president, and that's um, the U.S. at that point has George H.W. Bush as president. So that's when the negotiations start in in all seriousness. Canada becomes interested, and Canada in 91 says they want to be part of this as well. Negotiations go on, and they end up, um, during the Clinton administration, being being approved by Congress. NAFTA is fully, fully implemented by 2008. A lot of these agreements were, were phased out. You have situations in which Mexico wanted to protect a certain industry for a few more years. So it, it actually is completely implemented by 2008. So we've been under a full implementation of NAFTA for about 10 years now, or nine years exact. So we really only have, and we'll talk about this more, but we really only have about maybe 10 years of data, if you will, to justify whether or not, or to paint a picture as to whether or not this thing has actually worked, right? Like it's still, a, mm-hmm. it was 2008, but that's, that, that's, that's not that long ago <laughs> if you think about mm-hmm. that it was just implemented or fully implemented in 2008. Um, 10 years of data doesn't seem like a lot of, a lot of um, data. Well, we start we start seeing the benefits in the early two thousands already, right? Okay. So, so you see the benefits on both sides of the border or on the three sides of the border. Um, the the full implementation is there's just some straggler items that hadn't been completely um, the the tariffs hadn't been completely eliminated, but but we do start seeing the benefits earlier on. Um, Mexico was able to to survive the 98 Russia crisis fairly well because it had this robust trade between the two countries. It was strengthening its economy. Um, you have you have a bit of a dependence of Mexico in, on the United States, so it, it didn't fare that well in 2009 when we ourselves had our recession. Um, but that's because of the dependence between the two countries. They're very interlinked. Now, um, you... American products, foreign products start coming into Mexico in the late 90s, early 2000s. The quality of life um, and the access to to goods in Mexico has increased significantly. So even people that are, are relatively poor, it's not the word, but they're they're lower in the income level, mm-hmm. they can buy um, really good, high quality um, apparatuses for their kitchen, kitchen utensils, kitchen appliances. They can buy yogurt. They can buy all kinds of products that were before considered luxury items. And on the flip side, uh, Americans can buy fruit all year round. You can have avocados all year round, bananas, (laughs) strawberries, anything you want all year round, thanks to California and thanks to Mexico. So there are a number of other things that are positive as well, but that's a very concrete example of how Americans have benefited. It, it, it's funny you mentioned the avocados because that's what prompted me to start this show. I was trying to uh, scoop out the seed, uh, fighting with the with the <laughs> avocado, and noticed on the skin that the avocado said made in Mexico. I think it might have actually said like Eche in Mexico. Uh, and so I and that was around the time of uh, uh, the American president saying, you know, he was going to build a wall and, you know, Mexicans this and Mexicans that. And it just... It made me feel like uh, we should probably rethink the way we talk about Mexico because 
um, at least according to my research, 80% of our avocados come from them. So <laughs> our wonderful uh, <laughs> Super Bowl dip and our fancy hamburgers that we put avocados on and our smoothies are in jeopardy if we um, if we uh, continue to sort of uh, speak negatively about our neighbors to the south. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned the the avocados. And there's another thing I think that's interesting that you mentioned, and, and that is the interlinking nature of our relationship with Canada and Mexico. I don't think many people quite understand the depth of that interlinking. And it seems like what you're saying is, uh, at least starting from the Reagan years, um, it was recognized that our neighbors, if they do better, we do better. Um, and That's if exactly and and we can't mm-hmm. afford to, um, you know, isolate ourselves or or create a system where one country is um, overpowering another in trade, we kind of all need each other. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And more and more, um, so we we have become very interlinked, connected, um, and very dependent on each other. And in a good way, it's not a bad way, and it's not bad in any way or form because we've all grown um, and we've all become better um, countries for that, better economies, stronger economies for that. So it, it, as long as we go together, we will be stronger together. Um, but when we start kind of splitting apart is when um, things can be complicated. There's there's a number, it's hard, we're so interlinked nowadays that it's even hard to stand them, the idea of being, of splitting the economy. Mm. Um, it would have such dire consequences for both sides of the border. And and it goes from products, the price of products increasing, but also a series of security issues as well. I mean, people, um, it's, more likely migrants will flow north, but not just Mexican migrants. Mexico has protected us from the flow of Central American migrants, right? So you have all these people running away from gangs in Central America. They're coming to the United States, but Mexico is protecting us from them. They are actually absorbing a lot of these migrants Mm. in Mexico Mm. so that they don't go to the United States. The same applies for Haitians and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And our, our, our interlinkages and our cooperation, it goes much beyond trade. We, we do a lot of cooperation in terms of security. We share intel with each other. The U.S. government identifies the location of certain drug traffickers, tells the Mexican government where they are, mm. who then goes and picks them up, sends <laughs> them to the United States to be charged because there are charges in the U.S. and mm-hmm. it's a stronger judicial system. Mm-hmm. So we use the best of both countries to attack common problem, mm. right? The economic development on the border, the security situation on the border, all of these are common problems. Before we, we continue, I do have like a, a, a really super, super serious question that hopefully you can answer. Uh, and that is, you know, uh, is our tequila supply okay <laughs> <laughs> coming from Mexico? Like, is it on the chop? Like, are we going to be hurt? <laughs> <laughs> by by NAFTA well, uh, if it doesn't it, it, go it well depends. <laughs> it depends if, if NAFTA tomorrow goes away um, the way the, the the rules and regulations under the World Trade Organization are structured um, what's going to happen is any alcohol coming from the United States will actually get into Mexico at 0% tariff so it'll be the same price in the US or in Mexico the opposite however is not true so tequila will be taxed at 40% going into 
outside day. So if you want to have your margarita on a Saturday afternoon, you're going to have to pay 40% more for that margarita. And it, it's, it, so it is. <laughs> if tomorrow to the spheres, we will have to see her for our tequila supply. Oh, okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it directly from Jana. Uh, you should be paying attention to NAFTA, if anything, for the protection of our tequila supply here in the United States. So. <laughs> margaritas are very important. Margar- they, keep the margaritas cheap. Please, we, we please. <laughs> yes, please do. And wait, so I just, you know, let's play with this a little more because now I'm curious. So how exactly does tequila go from like the fruit that it comes from, which I can't remember what it is. Is it agave or? The agave. Jagave, yeah, jagave. Exactly. It goes from jagave to uh, my local packy, which is New England term for liquor store. But it, how does it get, what's the, what's the supply, <laughs> the supply process from jagave to my liquor store or so, the grocery of course, store? No. So actually, let me let me use the example of rum because then I add a third country and it just becomes a little bit more complex. Okay. Um, the, so because tequila is produced in Mexico, right? But what but what if it's, what if the agave weren't right? So in this case, rum sugarcane is produced in Belize, for example, right? So Belize sells sugarcane to Mexico, who then produces rum and bottles it, um, or rather, then just produces rum at a concentrate. Right. So then you have a second country from Belize to Mexico um, and, and we're going higher and higher up in the value chain. Right. So Belize produces agricultural products and Mexico does manufacturing products. Mm-hmm. And then that manufacturing product crosses into the United States, who does the bottling of the ah. product. It's the final final. Right. So it's, um, it's going to be the end product. It's also going to be the one that needs the highest um, the, the highest knowledge to produce, not because of the, the chemical content, but because the, the labeling has to be beautiful, the yeah. pork, all that kind of stuff, right? So the U.S. ends up with a final higher quality product or higher in the supply chain products and the value chain. And then from there, it goes to distributor. Um, and, and from the distributor ends up in your local liquor store where you can buy it off the shelf. Yeah, I love rum. I love coconut rum. Thank you. I have a greater appreciation for for the process, and I thank the country of Belize for their contribution of sugarcane to the rum process. <laughs> thank you for for explaining that. Um, and in, I want to, you know, talk in between that, you know, talk in between the thread a little bit. So, uh, as I mentioned, NAFTA, you know, gets some gets a bad rep out there in the streets. Um, and a lot of people blame it for job loss, offshoring, which is companies basically leaving their, moving their factories from, say, Ohio to Mexico. Um, it gets the blame for inequality, um, uh, unfair wages, low wages for workers. Um, and you've already mentioned, I think, some uh, some of the long run benefits um, that come with with NAFTA. And we see a lot of beef, no pun intended, but we see a lot of beef with NAFTA in the auto manufacturing sector and the agricultural um, sector. And the executive order that I talked about earlier mentions this. Let's tackle the, the one concern 
around labor rights and job loss. So particularly with Mexico, um, there's a problem with wages. People say that, you know, Mexican labor is cheaper. Um, they don't have the same human rights and worker safety um, standards that the United States does. Um, they're not allowed to unionize. Um, and, and American companies take advantage of that. Um, and so they move offshore. What are your thoughts about this issue related to the, the, the way we talk about job loss and, and human rights issues under NAFTA. Yeah, you're right. Um, Mexican labor is cheaper and there are fewer restrictions. That's absolutely correct. And that has been one of the main criticisms of NAFTA and it's a valid criticism. The way to solve that is um, to negotiate under future trade agreements, maybe it's this NAFTA, um, and for sure it was the trade, the, the Pacific Trade Agreement that was recently um, given up. But for sure there was a negotiation on the Pacific Trade Agreement to um, to to increase the standards for labor in all countries, not just Mexico. We're talking uh, countries in, in, in the Pacific that are manufacturing countries. They also have to increase their labor standards. So we were able to get all of those countries to agree to improve salaries, improve um, environmental standards as well. Let's not forget the environment uh, and improve labor standards so that we are people to compete more equally with the, with the labor in other countries, right? Or our companies could compete with labor in other countries more equally. Mm -hmm. so, so the way to do that is really through trade negotiation. Um, and because there's a teeth process, there's teeth, the WTO will go against the country that is diminishing labor standards um, when it's written in law that it can't, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's the way to solve it. But you're absolutely right that it is a problem and we have to fix it. And I think we will. I think this next NAFTA negotiation will improve um, labor standards in Mexico or in Mexico, Canada, and the United States. We'll have a more equal labor standard between all three countries. Um, so that, that is an issue. However, the reality is that is not the main reason Americans are losing jobs. If you go to the Chrysler manufacturing plant in the middle of in Coahuila, it's a desert area in the middle of nowhere in Mexico, you go there and there are no laborers. Mm. Everything is automated. Mm. It's robots everywhere. Mm. And we're not talking robots in the U.S. We're talking robots in Mexico. So these firms are coming and they're not hiring people. They're just putting their robots. Mm. And for some reason, it's still better for them to do it here. Um, or, and so it's just, it, it's an interesting situation. Most of the jobs are actually not being lost because of offshore, offshoring in Mexico. And what's fascinating, very little people talk about it, is when you build a factory in another country, you actually need staff at headquarters to manage all of that. Mm. So when you have a factory going to Mexico, the company, say Chrysler in this case, will hire two or more people, which sounds a little, not very much, but will hire people in the United States to help manage a factory from afar because right. they need to be able to, um, you know, they, they can't just have they, they have to have some sort of centralized system, right? right. So you're, you're, to a certain extent, um, growing jobs, but it's very little. We're talking two, three people. It's not that much. Right. Um, but the flip side of this is just as many companies are coming from the United States to Mexico as Mexican companies are going to the United States. So there's this fascinating technology firm called Softex. They do back office type things. You know 
how airplanes need to know when they're going to fly, when they can land, how many people they have, how mm-hmm. the weight of the suitcases, all of the electronics behind that, that's all digital, right? Mm-hmm. SoftTech does that. And they started this woman in Mexico from, from the middle of nowhere in Mexico who decided, who's an engineer, decided to open her software company, successfully did it, grew in Mexico, and is now present in the United States with three different offices, several American clients. So this engineering woman from Mexico is hiring like crazy in the mm. United States in technology, in really, really interesting um, kind of lines of work. And, um, and in addition to that, you have other things. You have um, firms in, in Mexico, like the bakery firm called Bimbo, which mm-hmm. is a horrible name, by the way. Um, <laughs> we won't judge. We will not judge them for that name. We will not. <laughs> um, but, so, so Bimbo has gone into the United States and has bought some firms in the U.S. or some other bakeries in the U.S. that weren't doing so well, has invested money in them, and has succeeded in making them productive and grow. So the perfect, perfect example is Sara Lee. Your Sara Lee pie are actually <laughs> Mexican nowadays. Let's let's wrap up here. Um, I'm gonna give you a scenario. Um, so let's say the uh, the U.S. trade representative comes to you, Jana, and is about to step into his meeting this week with all of the representatives and uh, leaders from Canada and Mexico, and he says, "You know, Jana." What what would you do to fix NAFTA? How would you improve trade between the three countries so that we we protect our our people and our businesses, but also, you know, respect the already established linkages we have between each other? What 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 would you what would you do to improve the current situation? Well, that's a hard one. <laughs> so many people have been thinking about it, right? And and the challenge is there are so many good things. Uh, folks who are who, who live and breathe this, who are passing products from, from one side of the border to the other every day, um, they, they see the larger tenets of NAFTA as, as pretty good. The negotiation was well done, and for the most part, everybody benefits. There's a few issues. Um, labor is one that we've mentioned, um, another one is there's a series of, um, of, of Canada is not our best partner, if you will. They, they often are putting subsidies and creating trade barriers. Mm. Um, so Canada doesn't Canada wants to weaken the teeth of NAFTA, the trade court of NAFTA. Um, so that would that if, if I were Canadian, that's what I'd be requesting. But I'm not right. I see Canada is infringing upon the law here. Um, and so we need to strengthen the trade court, not weaken it. Now, one of the complaints that everybody has is that the borders themselves are not actually easy to cross. You have I mean, it gets better and better every day. But you have trucks waiting on both sides of the border, and if they have um, if they if they have agricultural products, they might decay. Mm. You know, fruits might decay. So you need to get these things through really quickly. Right. And 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 if Amazon really wants to expand everywhere, they have to find a way to be able to do Prime from the United States to Mexico. Right. That's like a two day delivery. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't you can't you can't get that done nowadays. It just takes forever to get across the border. Now forever, we're talking three or four days, right? So it's not the worst situation in the world. But in in just in time manufacturing, you need to be able to move things quickly, quickly. or 
at a minimum, you need to know exactly how long it's going to take, and it always needs to be the same amount of time, right? So it can't be three days today, two days tomorrow, four days later. Right. It can't. You have to have some sort of consistency. Otherwise, your business model falls. Right. So you have a series of these problems, which is really, really just the technology and modernization of the border. It's improving flow at the border. It's making it like the Miami airport. You know, you can get thousands of people through really quickly. Right. That's what we need at the border. And so did you just basically advocate for not building a wall because it'll take Amazon forever to get like hammers through to people out in Mexico <laughs> like, <laughs> like or whatever it is like it, it's like it makes total sense like if there already are issues at the border like getting a truck across the border I would imagine that building a wall would probably hurt as well in trying to get products a, a you know between the countries faster that's just my like common sense thinking but <laughs> well i mean there, there's certain doors within this wall right <laughs> so, like, there's certain cross cross <laughs> i mean there's some cross-border areas um it, it, it's where the road goes it's where the, the cbp folks and, and everybody else are so i don't i can't imagine that they would close those they would just create walls around them so i don't know maybe it is making it worse maybe it isn't i I think the wall argument is actually more flawed because it would cost the united states um so much money right taxpayer money to build it and the effectiveness i mean the president himself said these folks could jump so many feet or they dig (laughs) underneath they'll just they'll just go if it's high they'll just create a ladder that's higher if it's really deep they i mean you you you've seen el chapo yeah. he's an expert in tunnels <laughs> so do not do, if mexicans are really good at engineering what kind of, um so they're just gonna build tunnels underneath of the wall it, it, it's just it's not sustainable and it's incredibly expensive plus environmental concerns we yeah. have the same border right we have same indigenous people on both sides of the border. You have the poor coyotes who can no longer cross anymore. Yeah. So they're going to become two different coyote species <laughs> because they're not going to intermingle. Yeah. I mean, you have environmental concerns that are pretty serious. Anyway. You have done an amazing job breaking this very complex topic down. Um, you know, there are 14 million jobs that depend on trade with Canada and Mexico. And at this point, I think we would all agree that withdrawing from NAFTA um, would harm the United States. Would you say that that's fair, uh, a fair assessment? It, it would harm all three countries. Involved. Yes. It would yeah. harm Mexico, it would harm the United States, and it would harm Canada. Definitely. Yeah. And that's the last thing we want to do um, in these times. So thank you so much again, Jana. You've been really helpful and shed so much light on this issue and really explained this in a way that hopefully everyone feels like they get. So when they hear phrases like trade deficit, they know um, (laughs) what that means. And when they hear free trade, they know what that means. So uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. No, no, thank you so much. No problem. No problem. Hopefully we will, we will have you back to, to break this out some more. Um, and really help people um, apply it to their to their day to day day lives. Um, in true tradition here on this show, I ask every guest to share a song 
that puts them in a good mood when, you know, the margarita ain't just the way you want it to be or, <laughs> you know, you're standing in line <laughs> waiting forever <laughs> for something um, and you're getting antsy. So uh, there's a lot of negative things happening in the world today. And I think music is one way to keep people sane uh, and happy. So what was the song and the, who was the artist that you selected for, for the show? So I selected Julieta Venegas. She's Mexican. She grew up on the border. Um, she is of the generation that saw the opening of the Mexican economy. And because she grew up on the border, she saw the changes over the border. It used to be easier for her to cross. Um, or for people from the border to cross, and no longer is. She's seen the, the security challenges of Tijuana, where she's from. She's also seen how Tijuana has been able to surpass the security challenges, and today is a pretty safe city. Um, so I, it, the song has nothing to do with this, really. It's just a really nice song I like to hear. <laughs> um, but, but Julieta Venegas is a, is a fantastic singer, and I think represents a lot of this Shared, um, shared history and shared background that we have between Mexico and the United States. And the song is called Ese Camino? Ese Camino, that's correct. And what does that mean? This road. This road. This road. Perfect. Um, hopefully the road uh, between the United States and Mexico <laughs> and Canada will open. remain uh, open and free and safe and um, productive for all three countries. Um and, and we'll be able to enjoy our margaritas and our pies and um, our tequila shots and <laughs> <laughs> whatever keeps all of our countries um, and all the people who live in them happy and safe and comfortable. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening to What in the World. Uh, you can find the show on WERA.FM and you can find us on Facebook at... Uh, what in the world podcast and uh, find us on Twitter at W I T W pod W I T W pod. Thank you all. Temores y sueños también, el tiempo pasaba, dejando huella en mi corazón, aunque mi memoria.